Hi everybody, now that we've wrapped our military medicine series, I want to take this week to thank Dr. Lou Tumilan, who stepped up and not only gave us another great interview himself, but took the helm and recorded a phenomenal interview with Dana DeCoster about buds and seal selection and training and how that reflects the neurosurgical process. If you missed those episodes, do yourself a favor, stop and go listen to them right now. So, this week I have for you a discussion that I had with Dr. Tumilan in Los Angeles at this year's ANS meeting about his single author, that's right, single author textbook, Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, A Primer. As I stressed during the episode, this is not a sponsored episode or paid advertisement of any kind. This is a genuinely great book from a genuinely great guy, and we are happy to promote both on the show. Dr. Tumilan, thank you again. It's always an honor to speak with you. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here again with a very dear friend of the show and a favorite returning guest, Dr. Lou Tumilan. He's been on the show a handful of times, always uh, beloved by myself and Dr. Wang, who can't be with us today, and our audience, of course. We're sitting down together in person Finally, our first face-to-face interview on the show um, at the ANS meeting here in Los Angeles, Dr. Storink's meeting, which has been a wonderful weekend so far. And today's topic is going to be a really fun one uh, that Dr. Tumilan has been gracious enough to come on the show and discuss his book, which we'll get into. But, sir, welcome to the podcast. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you, JP. So the name of the game today is Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, A Primer. And for all of you listening... This is your one shot at success. If you're medical students, if you're residents looking for fellowship, when you meet Dr. Tumilan and you interview with him, it's pronounced primer. So if you come in and say primer now, you have no excuse. So Dr. Tumilan, we were talking before uh, we started recording here about this book and how it's different from many scientific texts. And this is kind of how the genesis of this episode and the interview today was some of us talking about some of those differences. It's a single author book, a single editor book, and it's written in a different voice than many scientific texts. And so that's, I really wanna get into that and your approach to the style and the construction of this book. But before we talk about the work itself, why don't we take a step back and think about how it came to be? What was your process in deciding I'm going to write a definitive work on minimally invasive spine? Well, the reality is, it was never my intention to Mm. write a definitive work on minimally invasive spinal surgery. My intention was to fill in some gaps, practical application of these technologies and these techniques. And so the project arose truly more by accident than by design. There was never a design for a book more so there was a, a vision to have a practical uh, introductory outline, perhaps, that would help residents and fellows and even, even myself, mm. so I help organize my thinking. And so I had, when I, when I first got to Phoenix, I had residents that would come out and rotate with me. Um, minimally invasive was not very prominent, and so I, a resident would come and rotate with me and they say, hey, can you, can you 
give me your steps that you do for, say, the minimally invasive microdiscectomy. I said, sure. So we, I put an outline together on some key steps uh, and then add to that a pearl here or there, or this is a pitfall or this, that, and the other. And then that, you know, I still remember Justin Clark, uh, who's now in, in Michigan, uh, rotated with me and I put something together for him. And then following Justin was Laura Snyder, who uh, is uh, also now at our shop, a minimally invasive uh, guru herself. And she came by and I, and I tweaked, now went to the microdiscectomy, to the minimally invasive laminectomy, and then the, the, the T-lift, uh, the minimally invasive T-lift. My interpretation of what I would say is the optimum <coughs> minimally invasive T-lift. And then when you, when you had all of these things, all of a sudden then I just began adding to it. I thought that I would get together a little uh, primer of practical tips on how to do these procedures with maybe a couple case illustrations and uh, maybe an illustration of the uh, anatomy here and there. And that would be it. And then Peter Nakaji, my, my dear friend in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, somehow got that over to Tima. And then Tima uh, followed up with a, uh, a conversation saying, hey, would you like to develop uh, a text? Uh, and I said, you don't want a text with four chapters. They go, no, we, we don't need want a text with four chapters. We want a text with more than four chapters. Mm. So I put some thought together with it and then began to populate chapters, collect cases, and then we, we, it grew organically from there. Yeah, and I, I will say, anyone listening who has read the book, or if you haven't yet, after this conversation, when you go read the book, hearing this early description of, oh, a brief outline with some drawings, and comparing that notion to the primer itself and the finished product, it, there's universes between those two conceptions of, uh, what you started out intending to do with a, a brief outline of the way you do things and then this definitive, really uh, thorough work. Um, it is interesting to hear you say how putting this book together, not only for your residents, for fellows, but for yourself, um, improving your thinking. And it is true that putting words to paper is a very clarifying process for your own thoughts. Um, you know, we we're talking here, we're, we're speaking, and as we say the words, the moment passes. But when you're writing, you can look at your thoughts laid bare in front of you, see what you said, reconsider it, reconstruct it. Was this the first, I mean, I, I'm sure this is certainly the most extensive piece of writing you've done, but how much writing had you done before embarking on this book? And what was the process like of clarifying your craft in that way? Yeah. The one thing that became readily evident when I began putting pen to paper on this was the need to have a thorough understanding of the anatomical basis for these procedures. Mm. Why, why a 16 millimeter access port? Why not a 20? What's the anatomical basis? And so one of the focus, one of the areas of focus that I narrowed in almost immediately was to establish the anatomical basis for every single procedure. And I stumbled upon Kaspar's writing. Hmm. And one of the other things that I stumbled upon is the wisdom in our literature. All the way back from Mixture and Bar and through 
Gazi Yasergil and, and uh, Wolfhard Casper introducing the operating microscope is the wisdom in their writing. And this is a, I put this in the, in the preface that I make a promise to my reader, hopefully uh, some form of reconciliation for the, the power of bibliography, uh, or bibliographic software can have us reference a lot of things that maybe we don't necessarily always read more than the abstract. Mm. Anything that's referenced in the primer, I have the PDF. It's highlighted on, uh, on my PDF file. I've read it multiple times. If, if I didn't read it or have the PDF, it is not, I did not use that. And hopefully I can make up. And that's been my criteria now moving forward. I feel like I've, I've purged myself of the facility that biblio, bibliographic software can, can lend you. That is a powerful promise in academia. Yes. Every citation. Every citation has to have, I had to have had the PDF and have read it because then it's meaningful to, to my, to my reading. Mm. So, but in there, Caspar said something which I think is the, lays the foundation. Minimally invasive surgery, first of all, I, I would, I started this project thinking that minimally invasive surgery really is 1997 when, um, when Kevin Foley began uh, docking access ports uh, and beginning that ushered in the modern form of it. But in reality, minimally invasive surgery has been since the dawn of spine surgery in the modern spine surgery since Mixter and Barr because very quickly, all of every generation has contributed something to minimize the extent. Mixter and Barr had opened up the dura from the back, opened in the front to retrieve what they called an endochondroma and then mm -hmm. subsequently discovered it was a uh, herniated disc. Very quickly they said, well, we don't need to open up the dura, we'll just move the dura over. And then they said, we, we don't have to do a laminectomy, we just have to do a medial fasting. We, we don't have to resect the entire ligament. And so, and, it's been, and then we have gradually gone to minimizing the extent of uh, uh, trying to preserve the spine as much as possible to accomplish the task at hand. Caspar wrote something which I call in the book, the Caspar Ratio. And he says, you know, for, we are compromising the outcomes of our patients by having far too much exposure relative to the surgical target. Right. And I call that the Caspar ratio, the surgical target versus the exposure. And I think that is the essence of minimally invasive spinal surgery. Every operation should have that. What, it doesn't matter if, you're, if it's a cranial operation, if it's a peripheral nerve operation, or if it's a spine operation. That is the tenet where you put everything in the context of that ratio, and the ideal ratio, of course, is one-to-one. -one. Right. For that, you have to define the surgical target. And so a great deal of time went in and reading Punjabi and White, uh, building a three-dimensional model with our neuropublications department, and then making sure the fidelity of that was there, and then making all the measurements, confirming all the measurements, and establishing the anatomical basis for every operation relative to our minimal access corridors. And that, from there, uh, it, it then be, I added layers of complexity by doing that. Uh, but that's where I wanted to distill the essence of minimally what minimally invasive spinal surgery was. And at the same time, keeping it to be a practical text. I, I'd been reading all of these, these uh, chapters, and we've discussed about the, the schizophrenic voice in a multi-author text as mm. opposed to... And, I'd read a text and I'd, I'd finish, or a technique paper, I, I don't know where to put the incision. <laughs> and I know what to do when I got there, but I, yeah. I, don't know, I, don't, I didn't know where to put, how long is the incision? Um, how, off, how far off the midline? What, what's the rationale? What, what is the anatomical basis? Why are we 
doing things this way. And so I was very particular about making sure that it was a, a medical student, a resident, or someone interested in minimally invasive surgery can, can take the practical elements of putting, where, where to put the fluoroscopy unit, where to put the microscope, what yeah. bed to use, uh, and, what, and then the anatomical basis. And that made me a better surgeon because now I've said, there's no anatomical basis for a 20 millimeter or even 18 millimeter. A lumbar laminectomy, from if you're going to use frame it in the context of a anatomical basis for minimally invasive approach, can and maybe should be done through a 16 millimeter axis cord, or if not a 14. Microdiscectomies can be done through a 14 millimeter axis port. A posterior cervical foraminotomy, they don't have 12 millimeter axis ports, but if you base it on the anatomical, what I call the requisite anatomical unit, the distance from the pedicle of C5 to the pedicle of C6. It's 11 millimeters. I need to decompress a nerve root from pedicle to pedicle. I can do that through a 12 millimeter axis board provided it's well positioned hmm. over top of the, the pedicle. And thus was, it lent itself to innovation. I changed many things. Again, putting everything within the context of the anatomy that lay before us. And there also is the minimally invasive mindset. Uh, the recognition memory versus recall memory. When I do open surgery, when any of us do open surgery, we make a midline incision, we expose the spinous process, begin to expose the lamina, see the facets, go out to the transverse problem. We're just recognizing things. Yeah. We don't have to reconstruct the anatomy at depth. A minimally invasive spine surgeon has to actively develop the skill of reconstructing the anatomy at depth before they ever make an incision, hmm. planning the incision, using, instead of visual cues, tactile cues like the closing your eyes and then just feeling the, fir the first dilator fall off a bony structure, the, 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 the lamina edge or the facet, and then docking the access port, looking at a fluoroscopic unit and getting more out of that than a open spine surgery mindset because you're using that to fill the voids, to connect the lines of what is not seen to the lines that you do see. I believe therein lies the crux of minimally invasive spine surgery. And that is an active process, I believe. When individuals say the learning curve in minimally invasive spinal surgery is very steep, I don't find that helpful. What I do find helpful is distilling down what is going on in the area underneath that curve. Hmm. And what it is, is learning how to do your procedures with different visual cues reconstructing the anatomy at depth. For example, I always ask residents, I say, what is the distance from the pedicle of L4 to pedicle of L5? I get answers all over the map. Yeah. But in reality, the residents are, are looking at it from an open standpoint, and they don't recognize that the majority of the time they're either putting a 30 or 35 millimeter rod in there. So when they when they give me some outlandish numbers, it does, I, what is the rod that you just put in, or right. you, you typically put in? And the distance from pedicle to pedicle is 28 millimeters. A minimally invasive spinal surgeon should know that. A minimally invasive spinal surgery should know the interpedicular distance, the inter, intra and interpedicular distance, should know uh, at, if we're gonna be doing thoracic discs, we should understand that anatomy. And then all of this comes together so that we can reconstruct the anatomy at depth with less visualization of the anatomy, with less disruption of the anatomy. And therein lies what I believe is what the primer 
theme is throughout every single chapter. Yeah, and that's, you know, you're, you're doing my job for me because one of the things I wanted to touch on at least tangentially was what does minimally invasive mean to Dr. Lou Toomey Allen? And I think the definition of the Caspar ratio and every really philosophical tenet you just outlined in your approach to your patients, your approach to these surgeries technically, I think that's a brilliant definition and it clearly that's, it underlies your approach to all of these surgeries. Um, and it really does show through in the book. I will say right now for everyone listening, this is the part where I just pause and plant the flag shameless plug for this book. You sh- anyone who is remotely interested in spine surgery in general, minimally invasive, buy this book, read it. Everything you're hearing said right now is written out in the book. These measurements, the anatomical distances, the room layouts, w- literally where to put the incision. I, I know in many of your chapters uh, that I've read, you, you talk about bringing the patient in, positioning them what table. You even say your order of operations when you get your x-rays and how many x-rays you get precisely. It, it really is a single surgeon's vision of this is how I do it down to every last detail. So shamelessly promoting you, really anyone in the field should uh, buy and read this book. Um, there's, I, I cannot describe how much wealth of knowledge there is in there. Um, and as you touched on Dr. Tumi, one of the incredible parts of this book are the illustrations, um, not just for the anatomical sketches, the projections on the anatomical sketches showing some of these distances, the angles, the view down the tube, uh, but the room layout. And, and you really do in every single procedure, there's a wonderful top-down view of the, where do you put the x-ray projector, where's anesthesia, where does the surgeon stand, where's the table mount for the tube. So maybe talk a little bit about the process of, um, you know, a, again, a single author work, but with your words, your partner in crime, so to speak, uh, bring the words to life with the illustrations. How onerous was that process or, or how rewarding was the, with the product at the end? Yeah, so Josh, Josh Lay, uh, Joshua Lay is a medical illustrator um, and he was my, uh, I, I, very early in this project, before Josh was working on it and he and I came up with a system, we tried hand-drawn illustrations. I would draw some concepts on my iPad and then I'd take them and they would be hand-drawn. And the hand-drawn illustrations were beautiful. They were well-colored, they, they, they depicted the anatomy, but it wasn't what we saw. It couldn't capture that, that depth, that three-dimensional element. And I, uh, and poor Mark Chornak was getting very frustrated with me because I, it wasn't, Mark Chornak was the coordinator of neuropublications. He's like, we're not getting anywhere with your project because you're impossible to deal with. And I said, Mark, this is just not what, that my readers are going to be seen. I have a relationship with my reader. I owe them more. Hmm. Um, because that, as you said, it, it, what I'm doing is I'm not writing for the sake of writing. I'm conversing with my reader. I made a promise to my reader to, to observe a certain code of conduct with the references. I made a promise to my reader not to uh, get lost in the woods with, with uh, something far too esoteric and just keep it very practical. I wanted it to be like as if you and I were in the operating room and I'm, and I'm just 
chatting with JP. Here, here's, here's, here's where we're going to put the floor. This is look. Watch what I'm going to do here. I'm going to, this is, I'm going to plan my incision, and this is, this is the reason why. And then this is why I don't do fluoroscopy because I believe that your generation of surgeons is being exposed to more radiation than any other generation before us, and I don't, we don't know what the ramifications of that are going to be. So that's why mm. at the end of the book, there's two chapters on radiation. Yes. But so getting back to the, the, the illustrations, it became very apparent very early that hand-drawn illustrations were not going to work for a primer or for, for my primer. And if you look at some of the illustrations that are out there, you, 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 you're left wanting. So I wanted something. I wanted what Steve Jobs said when they designed the icons. He goes, I want icons so good that, that, my, that our customers are going to want to lick them. I wanted images so good that my that my readers are going to say this this crystallizes it, yeah. and that was kind of the vision that I set forth. It resonated with one illustrator uh, in particular, Josh, and Josh and I would I would write a chapter, I'd show him the illustrations. Hand drawn illustrations are going to work, so we we invested three months in building a three dimensional model, which we uh, we affectionately called Gilgamesh. It's a series of meshes. That built up on, and then it just so happened that my son was was working on a social studies project where they read Gilgamesh, who was the first superhero in Persian lore, yeah. and it was named Gilgamesh. To this day, we still generate at the neuropublications uh, department. We use Gilgamesh as our frame to do a lot of the illustrations from the BNI. So, and then there was this this iterative process. Josh and I would go through a chapter. He would draw some illustrations. I go, this is right, this is here, let's go here. And then it became even more sophisticated. Where to put the light? How does it look through the microscope? What's the angle that we want to do? And then it, you'll see a process that happens that the, the images actually become even more and more enriched as you advance through through the book, uh, through the process, almost to the point that I wanted to almost start back over, but then it really <laughs> would have kicked me out. The, but what happened is that once Josh had the final illustrations, I went back and re- wrote sections of the chapter to speak to the illustrations mm. so that there is this iterative process. So I, I oftentimes call this the, the, uh, the primer um, third, uh, third edition uh, because of the, the multiple iterations. After the final illustrations were done, I did one final pass to make sure that I spoke to the illustrations, the final beautiful illustrations that Josh was able to render. And I, I, I feel that's what each chapter kind of had that process. Yeah. And, and hopefully um, 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 the, my readers uh, see it and like it. Yeah, and, and I will say, as a reader of the book, the way that this is written, um, again, anyone who is listening and has yet to acquire this book and read it, this is not a handbook, you're on your way into the OR and, oh, wait a second, how do I position that? And you pull it up real quick, the PDF on your phone and, and get a last minute tidbit or something or the pearls at the end of the Handbook of Spine Surgery chapter, for example. This is a night before the case, maybe, or really, this is a, a book you could sit down and read narratively, cover to cover. Um, the voice in which you write it is, as you say, very conversational. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a bit to that decision. Um, we've, we've kind of touched on it here and there throughout this conversation as, as you aptly put the schizophrenic voice of, of multi-author books and um, this is very this is more like apocalypse now you know this is one man's vision of what you wanted to create and you write it that way 
you narrate it that way. The introductions to the chapters um, get into a lot of your thinking behind the techniques you describe in each chapter. So when you set out to do this, what, was there a conscious decision that I'm going to write a different sort of book with this? Um, and what was the feedback like from the editors? Because yeah. I, I imagine there was uh, some eyebrows raised, so yeah, to speak. The, um, so it be, as I said, it began as an organic project where I, it was not the intention to write a book more than anything, just to, to, to write. Like if you were rotating with me and you said, hey, I, what, what are the little pearls? I said, JP, let me write something. So I'm writing to you, JP, hey, here's what I'm thinking when I do this. And yeah. there's the rationale behind this. And as the book evolved, there was a question by um, some editors when this is not the scientific voice you cannot write like this a mm. scientific and I and I, I said no I I, I can't because yeah. I, I I'm I want to have a relationship with my with my reader um, and the, I during the final draft I wanted to make sure that I anything that sounded like it belonged in a a, a scientific tome was removed and I just wanted to make sure that I distilled or rewrote anything that wasn't in that friendly voice. One editor in particular just did, it did not resonate with, with, with her and I had to find a, uh, and, and so, but there is a, uh, we ended up finding the right team. The right team came together just like we, that William Murray quote that I, uh, that was part of the song check. The right people all came out of the woodwork. Yeah. Josh, Lay. I mean, where did he come from? It came out of the woodwork, our, our construction of Gilgamesh. These, these moments of, these eureka moments that we had when we were uh, uh, working through some of the things. For example, the on-block resection of ligamentum flavum, that all was born out of just doing the anatomical analysis here and, 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 and then saying, okay, we're going to apply that now to the transferaminal lumbar antibody fusion. All of these things, again, it, it, it put a lot of thought behind what, what it is that we do, why we do it in that manner, and then, then evolved the procedure just from, from constructing the book and the chapters in the manner that they, 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 they ended up developing into. Yeah. You know, we're at a conference, and, and you go to a conference or in your department conferences back home, you show cases, and for you, you're, you show your friends, here's a case that I had. Here's, I had this patient. I decided to do this. Here's my post-op films, and and people will criticize cases. They say, oh, I would have done this, or why did you do that? And did you consider X, X, Y, and Z? Or maybe you're showing complications. A book like this is kind of that, that concept of, hey, here's what I do. What, what do you think, friends? Taken to such a degree, as we're saying, you're, you're, you talk about where I put my incision and why I do this and why I do that. Have you heard any feedback from people who've read the book? And, and b because you're really putting yourself out there sure. on a certain yeah. level, not just your mindset about all these things, but you, in exhaustive detail, you, you lay out, I do this and then I do that and I do it this way and I do it that way for every procedure in the book. And so I, I wonder if any of your friends have, have read a chapter and said, Lou, why would you do that? Right. that that's, that's crazy. What is no, there, there, but there's been no shortage of feedback yeah. <laughs> um, on, on certain chapters. Let, let's take the, um, the minimally invasive T-lift. Mm. That is, what is the minimally invasive T-lift? I mean, there may be 12 different ways to do that procedure. As many surgeons are in the room, that's how many ways. And 
I went through the process of seeking mentor after mentor and reading paper after paper and and finding what it because there's also a principle there's one best way there's not two mm. there's one so let's take the the most common procedure that we do that for uh, and when we look at all the uh, spondylolisthesis study uh, when we look at the sports study when we look at zogo gawala's study when we look at the the uh, the, the study uh, from fourth l45 was the most common level. So let's take a look at L4-5. There's got to be one best way to do that. Is it percutaneous? Well, what are the things about percutaneous that uh, may be a detractor? Um, what, what is it? Is it a fixed tube? It's an expandable tube. Again, what I did is I went back to the anatomy. And what I wanted to do is, is re- identify what would be the most efficient, uh, anatomically sound manner to accomplish all of the goals to achieve a comprehensive decompression, uh, uh, ensure uh, safe instrumentation, minimize uh, any uh, injury to the adjacent structures. And so I I established the the rationale behind that approach. Now, that's the one best way that my path has taken me. Juan Uribe will look at that. It was my partner. He's like, Louis, what is it? And so I, I and, and, I re, and he, his outcomes are great. We have a paper that's going to be coming out where he looks at his 4-5 X list. I look at my 4-5 T lifts. And the great news is the outcomes are, are patients are doing great. We, we all have a, a, a set of tools in our hands. So I, I, I present that. And then, you know, there will be a reader of this who will take those things and then take them to the next level and perhaps find the one best way that's better than what I have stumbled upon. I explored all of those elements. It's such a heterogeneous entity. I wanted to give it some homogeneity. Yeah. It had to be at least per surgeon. I think we can all agree with one thing. There may not be one best way, but each surgeon should find that one best way for them mm-hmm. and stick with it. Going in and say, well, today I'm going to do perk, or today I'm going to do a fixed tube, or today I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to... So there's got to be one, I think we can all agree, let's find the one best way that's going to work in your hand. Develop that, refine that, because there becomes comes the safety, the efficacy, and optimization of outcomes, because it's the patients that trust us with their care. Yeah. When we started this podcast, uh, Dr. Wang and I had a conversation on how we would define success with this show, and, and the single item at the top of the list that, that we agreed would be the, the gold standard for if, if this podcast was a success is that one day on the interview trail, someone would say to one of us, you know, I, I first thought of going into neurosurgery because I heard your show. And, and we, we do episodes, we reach out to medical students and college students, and, and we, somewhere out there, maybe, hopefully, we pray that student is growing up and one day we'll hear from them. So that's out in orbit, and we're, we're waiting for it. Have you yet had a resident or trainee in your OR who said, you know, Dr. Tumila, actually, uh, in your book, you said to do it this way, and, and you're doing that actually, but in, in the primer, you, you said to do it this way. So ha- has someone called you out so, uh, making a change in your own OR? Yes. Um, where I, in the revision microdiscectomy, I advised the reader to do an 18-millimeter access port, not a 16-millimeter because it, it's potentially safer. But then I was called out on it recently, like, you're, you're, you're doing a revision microdiscectomy, but you're still using a 16. I said... Yeah, but I wouldn't recommend. I go. This is something that you're going to evolve to. But and there and I and I read certain sections and I go, wow, yeah, I, I I've evolved that perhaps 
a little bit more yeah. from there because nothing's going to be static. The uh, and how did how did that feel when the resident brought that? That's got to feel good, right? They read your book and well, they caught you. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a, it's amusing. To uh, when I did a visiting professor, uh, the residents came up and and, and put a couple uh, quotes up their their favorite quotes from the book. I go, well, I put that in there <laughs> because there there are some quotes from uh, Mark Twain when uh, I, I stole one of his lines where he he describes uh, dripping in profanity and perspiration, and I put that. Yeah. somewhere in the book and so some of those kind of filter out because I want, want my reader to smile um, but the uh, or laugh if they can reading a book the um, but yeah there, and I some things are brought to my attention and I said you know this is a process of evolution and uh, and you know it, it no, nothing should remain static I would suggest I mean right. if, if 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 I do everything exactly the same way that I wrote it in in 2020 in 2038 when I retire, then, then the field hasn't advanced. This is, there's an ephemeral nature to this. While there's principles that hopefully are timeless, there'll be advancements that something else mm. awaits the, the herniated discs of the future that's not in this book. Yeah. We'd be fools not to think that. And, I'm, and I hope that this at least lays the foundation for that advancement or, or contributes at least in some way. Yeah. Well, I, I need to respect your time and it's, I could sit here and talk to you for hours every time that, you know, the clock stops, but before we wrap up, because I know it's an issue that you care deeply about. Um, I did want to give you a chance to, to say a quick word about radiation exposure. As you said, there's chapters at the end and I don't know if I've told you this before. The, the first time I ever saw you was at a spine section meeting when I was in medical school and you were in a debate about radiation exposure in I think it was the Orlando meeting probably five, six years ago now. And, and you, as always, were speaking definitively. You, you talked about your naval experience and you really got into the science of radiation exposure and uh, broke down the, the, the quantifiable exposure to surgeons uh, in the operating room. And so, as you said, particularly in most MIS rooms, we are getting exposed more and more and more. And so, I wonder if you could just say a brief word about your feelings on radiation exposure and how you mitigate that. So I, I think that organized neurosurgery and spine surgery in particular can do a better job about educating the residents that have entrusted us with their training to know more about radiation. I see no downside to that. That's a topic of, of debate, uh, but not for me. I, I see no downside for you to know as much about radiation, radiation awareness as possible. This was a unintended circumstantial element of my naval training. One of the things I did as a dive medical officer in the world's finest Navy was go to Groton, Connecticut, where I trained in radiation safety. We, the Navy, and that's a culture that was established by Admiral Rickover the longest serving officer in the history of the Navy who, who converted our, and I, I cite Admiral Rickover in, in, in my chapter on radiation. He, he converted a diesel uh, Navy to a nuclear Navy and the number of mishaps because of the culture that Admiral Rickover has created is very easy to tabulate, mm. zero. <laughs> so the radiation health, the radiation awareness in the Navy, in the nuclear Navy is very high nuclear propulsion 
officers know everything. Even the enlisted, there, there's a very sophisticated training. And so I was aghast when I came back to training, having that exposure, having served on nuclear submarines and wearing my dosimeter and the culture of um, how many, how much exposure we can get, to, to the absence of that awareness, while we while the person hitting the button doesn't, I mean, I half half the fellows and residents when I ask them where's the radiation coming from, they, hmm. they'll they'll point to the image intensifier, they won't know the X-ray tube, yeah. or I'll say, how how is radiation generated from, how, how does it how does a fluoroscopy unit even generate radiation? It, no one unless they or unless they're a radiation health officer in the Navy, and I ran into those too, uh, can say it's a thorated tungsten filament that's going to be heated up by a certain amount of uh, milliamps uh, and KVP that's going to spit out electrons from the thorated tungsten filament, hit a tungsten target, jettison an electron out of one of its shells, and it's a transfer of an electron from an outer shell to the inner shell that generates the X-ray, which is why we have so much noise, because it's not going to be always an outer shell, inner shell, but I would say that there's value in, in knowing that for the surgeon who's using that and then know the principle, how to protect yourself. What's the rationale? Those to me are the most, the two most important chapters because if any of my children were to go into medicine and neurosurgery in particular, that would be the most important thing for me to pass on to them yeah. because I would never put my child in front of a fluoroscopic unit and hit the button unnecessarily. JP, you have a mom and a dad that care a great deal about you. Yeah. And they trust your educators, the people who are training you, to keep your safety in mind. Those two chapters, which were controversial to put in the perimeter to begin with, I feel are the message that I wanted to send so I can do something about increasing radiation awareness for your safety, for the safety, perhaps someday, of my children to begin to change the culture, to increase it to a culture of awareness, and then action, where we're doing something to mitigate these things. And technologies have come about. Some of these, uh, because of uh, some of the technologies that I've been fortunate to help develop, are looking at ways to mitigate radiation, to look at ways outside of just computer-assisted navigation from, uh, from a three-dimensional spin. But just, we're not going to be doing uh, O-arm spins for a microdiscectomy, but there's got to be ways that we can still lower the radiation. What about an ACDF? We're going to be walking hand-in-hand hand with fluoroscopy probably through the end of my career, well into 2040. How, what does the future of that look like in a way that's going to create a safer environment for the residents of today, the residents of the future, our staff, our nurses, and our patients. Therein lies why uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13 are so dear to me. And it is, I believe, a gift given to me by the world's finest Navy and Admiral Rick Elver's culture. I wanted that to spill into neurosurgery as well. We need some of that. Yeah, well said. Um, well, Dr. Tumilan, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. As I said, the first time we got to sit down and do this in person, which is always a, a lot of fun, I think. The, the conversation is always a little bit different. Um, the book can be found on Amazon, and is that the best place for people to get it? Tima, it's on the Tima website as well. Tima website. Uh, Amazon is, uh, is, is somehow they, they, um, they discount it there, so oh. I'd look at Amazon first before <laughs> well, Tima. There you go, yeah. We'll, we'll link to it uh, in the show notes um, so everyone can find it. And again, I just want to stress, 
Dr. Tumi Lan did not come to us and say, hey, can, can we do an episode on the show to promote my book? I went to him because I read this book. I truly enjoyed it. And of all the ways I've described this book as unique within neurosurgery and with scientific texts, it is really something you can sit down and read cover to cover, not just going to it for specific information, but actually reading, turning the pages, and consuming the whole chapter as a narrative work, not just a reference work. Um, and that is a very rare thing with something that is a scientific or technical work within our discipline. So it's, it's a truly enjoyable as well as an educational read. And so I would advise anyone in training, certainly uh, get the book, read the book, appreciate what's in it. Dr. Tumilan, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Again, my privilege to be here, JP. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.